Hello there, you are very welcome to Over the Wire, the podcast from the Anderson'stown News and BelfastMedia.com. If this is your first time joining us, we are marking 50 years of the Anderson'stown News with a podcast looking back at the people and the stories who have made our pages over the last five decades. This week we are going back to 1990, when on the 13th of January that year, Peter Thompson, Eddie Hale and John Joseph McNeil were shot dead outside Sean Graham's bookmakers at the junction of the Falls and White Rock Roads following an armed robbery. As he emerged from the shop unarmed, Peter Thompson was shot at least 10 times. Hale, who was carrying a concealed weapon in his clothing, was hit 12 times, 9 in the back. The getaway driver McNeil was shot in the face at point-blank range behind the wheel of a car outside. No gun was found beside McNeil. The two soldiers responsible for his death claimed that he made a movement indicating he was armed and that there was no alternative to shoot, although this has never been proved. Eyewitnesses report suggests that the men were not given a chance to surrender. A year after the killings, Peter Thompson's brother Mark became a founding member of Relatives for Justice, an NGO set up by relatives seeking answers to the killings of their loved ones during the conflict. Mark joins us now. Mark, you're very welcome to the podcast. How are you keeping? I'm good, James. How are you? Uh, Taking over, as they say. <laughs> now, prior to your brother's killing, am I right in understanding that your mother's car had been followed and in fact that he had received three calls from a woman with an English accent? Well, the backdrop to my brother's death goes back to uh, early December uh, 1989, in which two young lads from West Belfast had broken into a car just outside Lisburn and they'd taken to uh, hold all bags from the car. The car, we subsequently learned, belonged to a covert uh, military team of the British Army based at Thiefel Barracks uh, in Lisburn. And then that bag contained maps and papers and codes and documents relating to the surveillance of houses in West Belfast. Uh, presumably belonging to Republicans, and um, some weapons, uh, two guns and ammunition and, and other bits and pieces. Um, obviously, there was a hunt for who had stole or taken these, these weapons, and that had come up uh, with a kind of zero result. And then uh, a raid in a lockup garage in Lurgan, uh, where one of these weapons had been concealed, a routine raid had taken place. It was a garage in Lurgan where an associate of those killed had um, had been keeping uh, stone and electrical equipment, toasters, cookers, microwaves, stuff like that, kettles. And he had sold one of them for pin money. And there was a dispute with a woman who he'd sold it to because it had broken. And he, she phoned the RUC. The RUC raided it, found the electrical goods, but then found the gun and realized obviously it was one of the guns taken from the car in Lisburn belonging to the covert unit of the British Army. Um, this person then wasn't uh, formally charged with that. He was released and he arrived at their home in Upper Dunmarillion, uh, number 80 Upper Dunmarillion and, and, and just on the outskirts of West Belfast with it all being stabbed. And uh, an argument ensued with him and they were kind of distrustful. He went away and he retrieved the other weapon. They told him where it was. The documents and maps had been destroyed and they'd been put under surveillance since mid-December uh, 89. Um, there was a bug found in their home. Uh, they were being followed. There was a number of things happened. All spawns beknownst to us uh, at the time. And then um, there was the suggestion of a robbery. And as it transpires, the robbery was put together for Sean Graham's bookmakers 
uh, on the Saturday morning of the 13th of January 1990. Um, there was a car taken on the Friday evening uh, from the Royal Hospital. It was secreted in Twinbrook in Glasgow Park. Uh, and there was um, imitation, two imitation firearms uh, secreted in the graveyard adjacent to the bookmakers. Um, it transpires that there were four undercover cars containing seven British soldiers led by a soldier uh, in charge on his own. Uh, his movements were in Glasgow Park in Twinbrook half an hour before my brother Peter left that area in the car that was taken for the robbery. Uh, and the car containing the two soldiers known as MB that did the shootings. And then there were two other cars, one in Beachmount and, and one just uh, further down the Falls Road. There was a ring of steel around the area and two heli or one helicopter and a radio operator. And a covert operation put in place to kill them on the basis of probably what they had seen. And unbeknownst to us, the first we knew about it was when a colleague uh, of theirs um, had come to say they'd been shot dead. And uh, he, had, he had contexted this in the sense that it was probably the SAS because we stole their gear. And that was the sense of it. And that was the first such a shock. And when I was told Peter was dead, I was thinking, was it a car accident or something that had happened? So, the, you know, it's a very complex case. There's a lot of detail to it. Um, they were clearly under surveillance. They were clearly killed. One of the, 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 the soldiers that returned to his vehicle and retrieved his personal issue uh, gun, and he'd shot Peter and Eddie twice in the back of the head, as they were probably already dead. So in the context of that, when they talk about uh, having to make um, split-second decisions and lives being in danger, he did the opportunity to return and, and take his personal issue pistol. And it had transpired in the autopsy reports when uh, six months later that they'd been shot with three different types of weapon and that 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 there's no explanation for that so there was even clearly excessive force and pre-planned premeditated murder in our view but in the context more more broadly um i and our family um were engaged um with a number of other families particularly people like monsignor raymond murray and claire riley and Peter Madden, who'd been the, the, the kind of the practicing partner solicitor of the, the late Pat Finucane, a number of families that had a common experience of conflict, who had come together um, to kind of, you know, to ventilate the issues of injustice, uh, to ventilate the failures of the criminal justice system, the holy account state actors, and to support one another. And in April 1991, Royal for Justice was founded in, in Dungannon. Like people from Tyrone will argue that's the epicenter of everything in Ireland um, from the civil rights movement and O'Neill and everything. But but um, but but yes, um, you know, families with a, a as I say, a common experience of state violence, rubber and plastic bullets, um, collusion, shoot to kill, use of excessive force, lethal force, all of those families kind of in some senses didn't have a voice. Um, well, they had a voice, but it wasn't being um, amplified in the, the mainstream media. And I suppose we're talking and it's the, the 50th kind of anniversary of the Anderson'stown News. We found a home with the papers like the Anderson'stown News. Well, well, really only the Anderson'stown News, in a sense, as a community paper that ventilated and give, 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 um, give solace and give, give comfort in the sense that they told it as it was. You know, I remember doing interviews um, for RFJ and even um, personally in, in terms of my own experience. I remember talking to mainstream media and I remember one interview 
me going on to talk um, about a European court case. And this was kind of par for the course back in the day, um, you know, the 1990s. You're, you're near enough being asked, well, when, you, when I raise something about what the British Army did at the RUC, I was in, invariably asked, well, what about the IRA? And I'd often say, well, I, I'm kind of not here to talk about the IRA. I'm here to talk about these people that have been killed by the British Army at the RUC, or where there's allegations of collusion, or prima facie evidence of collusion, and we need to articulate and ventilate, and we need to extrapolate and look at these issues. And it was always met by that in a prejudice, if you will, in a bias. And, and I remember saying the one interviewer, I won't name them, but, 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 but a significant interviewer of the time, and who, who would have been quite robust. And before I come on waiting on the radio, they finished the piece with Ronnie Flanagan, who was then the chief constable of the RUC. And I said to them, tell me this, do you ask Ronnie Flanagan when he comes on to your program, what about the RUC and what about the British Army and what about collusion? Because I never ask you here, uh, hear you asking them those questions, yet I come on to talk about people killed, uninvolved civilians or people who were unarmed killed by the British Army in very uh, disputed circumstances. And I'm constantly asked, well, what about the IRA? And I suppose that's an example of the bias and the prejudice. And that's where the Andy Town News was important for us as families in a campaign group because um, they understood uh, it is a community paper. Uh, it told it as it was. Um, and, 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 and it was a voice for us, not only because, you know, the days we had social media, you had to rely on mainstream media and there was so much pre prejudice and bias and, and censorship. So in that context, the Andy Town News has been an important kind of um, ally uh, that has kind of paralleled the journey of Relatives for Justice as well. The ups and downs, the trials, the tribulations, but also importantly, the people that we support in the families and providing an uncensored um, and an unfiltered voice for them. They articulate uh, their experiences and, and, and they, they raise their campaigns and put them banner high, uh, which has been important. And that's an opportunity that was never afforded to them by much of the mainstream media. Um, uh, yep. And obviously, would you say that the sense of collective grief of all of the families that are involved with um, RFJ is what spurs you on and what almost enforces that need for justice? Well, yes, you, you have a common kind of approach and a common experience. I, I suppose you could say that you know, a lot of the incidents where people lose their lives around relatives for justice are kind of quite different. They're, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, young Jim Darty playing in his front garden, six years of age and shot dead, um, you know, uh, and presumably, you know, by the state. Um, you, 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 you look at the people in Ballamurphy or Spring Hill going about their business. You look at activists that have been killed, elected representatives. You know, people have met their deaths by you know, the SAS, the British Army, the RUC, loyalist paramilitaries, even by Republicans in, in, in contexts too. And, and, and the circumstances can be somewhat different. The, the, the common denominator that where we came together was the fact that once the state was involved, the shutters went down. So you had a perfunctory process of investigation. So there was never an independent investigation carried out. There was never due process. There was never, you know, it was, you know what, I, you know, there was no chance of getting justice. And I think the stats bear that. 
you know, of the majority, well, the majority of people killed by the state, you know, the vast overwhelming majority are nationalist Catholics, Republicans, you know, and, and, and you, you have to view it through that prism too. It's almost near like a sectarian campaign waged against the community by the British Army and the IUC. And then you have the brutality and the torture and all on top of that. So when you have people like Raymond Murray and Clara Riley around you, and Raymond Murray's mantra, Father Murray's mantra was to document, document and document. And Clara's mantra was that if we remain silent, then the evil will only flourish. And if we lose our humanity, then kind of we lose everything type of thing. So, so we great people around us and, and leaders. And, and in some senses, the families had that common journey. Journey We were up against the system in terms of because, because of who the perpetrator was, i.e. the state. We were up against it. And we all faced the similar, the, the same structure in that perfunctory investigations by the RUC that weren't independent or impartial, recommendations of no prosecution when prima facie evidence would have existed, witnesses being intimidated, witnesses being ignored, forensic evidence being ignored, ballistic evidence being ignored, then the director of public prosecutions deciding no prosecution of if it were soldiers or RUC officers, but not providing sufficient public reason as to why they arrived at such a decision in the face of the evidence, and then it being referred to an inquest, and an inquest being unable to compel British soldiers and RUC officers to the court so as they could be cross-examined. Instead, only witness statements taken by British Army or RUC lawyers were submitted, which couldn't be cross-examined. And then the inquests were normally opened within hours and closed within hours. And um, really only a death certificate issued, leaving so many unanswered questions. I suppose in some context in, in 1999, RFJ had a, a, a discussion about the prohibitive nature of the judicial system in the north of Ireland and being able to function um, and, and uh, properly and to deliver um, on issues around collusion, shoot to kill, excessive force, lethal force, those types of killings. And what we kind of did is that with the help of people like, you know, Peter Madden and barristers then, like Seamus Tracy and, and others, and the CAJA, Mike Ritchie, who is now, uh, uh, works at RFG and leads our casework team, Paul McGee the lawyer, uh, for the CAJ, we kind of had these discussions and with Madden and Finucan solicitors, the kind of three organizations, RFJ, uh, Madden and Finucan and the Committee on the Administration of Justice. We had this discussion that kind of lent us to the view that a legal strategy in taking a case to Europe would be not so much about the killing on Article 2, the, the right to life issue of the convention, but could we, could we put the system uh, the perfunctory uh, system that provided de facto impunity to those involved, could we put that system on trial? Was it, was it compliant with the convention obligations that the UK had signed up to in the European Convention on Human Rights? And um, we took that case, and the cases that went was Pierce Jordan, an unarmed IRA volunteer, murdered at the bottom of the Falls Road. Uh, at bottom of the, at the White Rock and Junction Falls Road Junction. Um, the shoot to kill cases that had been in, uh, indefinitely suspended from uh, by the carried out by the RUCZ4A in 1982, November and December. And then the killing of Patrick Shanahan in Castle Durg, a Sinn Fein election worker who'd been arrested a number of times and threatened. And then the killings at Loch Gall of eight IRA volunteers. And, and an unarmed civilian. And those cases went on the kind of the duty to investigate and the court found unanimously that 
the UK was in violation of its domestic obligations to hold proper effective investigations and hold those to a uh, responsible the account and that is the kind of big article two question now that's changed the landscape and in so many regards that's being used and fought through through the courts domestically and i think that's the context in which the uk have decided hey do you know what we can't face into this there's too much at stake let's have an amnesty let's bring the shutters down again mm. and it kind of brings you back full circle so we're victims of our own success in that regard but and we continue up battle as you mentioned there, the legacy of the conflict is something which is yet to be dealt with. But I'm sure that those who you who you are working with um, find the latest proposals by the British government to be absolutely reprehensible. No, absolutely. You know, the UK, this Tory government stands on its own. You know, the, the one big thing about the Good Friday Agreement and the huge and significant uh, advancement that it has had is that it hasn't really fully been implemented around a number of issues. But in particular, the, the kind of dealing with the legacy of the past was never a major consideration in the context of it. I suppose, you know, that's easy with hindsight to look back. And it's not a criticism. As one person had said to me, listen, Mark, you know, if we'd have been dealing with that in there, we'd have never got out of the place. You know, you'd have still been talking about it, such is the nature of how it is contested. And of course, you kind of need to have the building blocks. So in some senses, the 2014 agreement finally addressed legacy with the Irish government the British government and all the executive parties. And then, of course, the UK renege on it. And they stand alone in that in this pursuit of the this amnesty bill that they're, you know, they're pushing forward. And, you know, they've a neck to talk to you and, and, and try and tell you that it's it's about reconciliation. It's about protecting the Good Friday Agreement. And it's in our best interest. The only interest this is in is the interest of, of, of keeping a veil of secrecy over what the state was involved in. You know, if you look at the issue of collusion, you know, you, you know, there, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of deaths. We documented in the mid 1990s, um, 229 murders involving elements of collusion, including the importation of weapons. And there's much more since that. If you look, some of the biggest incidents in the island from Dublin Monaghan bombing to the Oma bombing, uh, which a judge had said in, in, in the High Court in November of last year. You know, there are serious questions about, you know, the infiltration of this organization agents and it needs to be properly investigated. And then if you even look at some of the first bombings like McGurk's. So in, in, in a broader context, you know, the UK, they, 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 they have a view, the, the global view of this in terms of legacy. And it's for them, it's, it's not a nice picture and, and they don't want it out there. But for families, it's important because the recovery of historical memory, truth, accountability is all part of healing. The perpetuality of trauma and, 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 and healing can't be achieved and, and well continues in that perpetual cycle until you resolve it in terms of a, a form of accountability. And I suppose the UK have looked at the Bella Murphy inquest and they've looked at what emerged in that and they're saying, well, you know, there's a lot more to come. You know, we're not going to tolerate this. So this 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 bill from a, a kind of a securocrat security point of view of those people that were putting the policies in place around collusion, the cover-ups. And all of those issues, that all of that's at stake, and, and, and they're not prepared to kind of open the vault and open the files and, 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 and let us get a broader view. But that, that's colonialism, that's imperialism, that's how it operates, and that, that's exactly what it is in our country. And kind of bringing it back to our community, you know, you know the people that founded the Andy Town News, you know, they were doing that at great personal risk at a time when they were being harassed. They could have been shot by soldiers. RUC harassment, loyalism, anything, but they decided to take a stand and put it put together a news sheet and give our community a voice 
And that's been important. And so the anti-town news, you know, from tracking everything that happened, and, and I often look at the paper, and I, 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 I love the part of the paper that reflects back. And you have started doing that again in a bit more detail, reflecting back to, say, picking a year in the 70s or the 80s and looking about pictures of what people were doing socially. And, 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 and when you look at it, our social fabric of our community is reflected in that paper. And it's really around responding to the occupation of our community, whether it be Casement Park, whether it be oppression, whether it be stop and searches, raids, whether it be attacks, whether it be discrimination at a broader policy, governmental level by the NIO, the inequalities, all the inefficiencies and all the part and parcel that comes with occupation. But that voice has remained consistent throughout. And that's what we tapped into in 91 when RFJ was founded. It's what our family tapped into in 1990 when my brother was murdered. And, and, and you know, and, and beyond a notable few exceptions within the journalist world beyond that, you know, and there were good people that have come and did good programs. But the Andy Town News has been consistently there as our voice. And we have to applaud and, and, and have, a, have, have respect and gratitude and thanks for those people that founded it and who've been part of it and part of its journey and its progression throughout and, and, and now with social media and everything else that's going on in podcasts like these. It's important that we don't lose sight of that because I think for another generation, like I, I have five kids and, 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 and they look at the paper sometimes and we get a hard copy or we get the digital copy and yet they look back and say, God, I didn't know that happened in 79. Or they look at Oshin's eye and they're saying, well, what was that about? So, you know, it, it, there's, there's a historical memory there that's important to tap into as well. And we have the future to look forward to. So in terms of this bill and what RFJ will do, with lawyers and other families, we'll challenge it. But the, the, the awful thing for that is we're dealing with an agent population of people that have told their stories in the 70s and 80s to the Andy Town News. They've had that opportunity and you've helped to ventilate and raise those issues and put it banner high, as I say. But they're in their 70s and their 80s, some of them in their 90s. They don't have three, four, five years of a battle in the courts. And, you know, they're, maybe their spouses or other family members have died not having truth. You know, if you look at the Bala Murphy thing and the many families of around that and the vindication that it was or Bloody Sunday or other cases similar, but they're two big ones. Look at the amount of people and look at the time it's taken to get to there and who's missed out on that. Parents, all the parents of those killed, you know, I think of Mr. and Mrs. Laverty, uh, John Laverty's parents, you know, it broke their hearts like it did everybody else. But they did. They weren't there to see the vindication, the lies that were told being exposed in the, in in the coroner's verdict. So all of those things, and I fear this 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 that this current piece of legislation, we're up for a battle with it. But but it, it, it's the very human thing that people will pass away during that battle when they're on the cusp of a process that could have delivered for them, and they're they're not going to possibly see that. And these are the these are the things, and we have to look as well, where are we in the next five to 10 to 15 years, you know, as a community, as a country, you know, reunification is a big issue. And if that happens, how do we deal with the UK and all that, all these issues in the context of that, national reconciliation, reunification, how we look at our past, how we deal with our future, all of those things are important in RFJ, look at all of that, how is policing, how is human rights, because the learning that emerges from all of this is that never again, should be the mantra too, you know. Well, Mark, that is all we have time for. Thank you very much for coming on to the podcast and a big thank you to each and every one of you who continue to listen along at home. Until next time, Slán August Bánacht.